Welcome to the Glasgow Baptist Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Erdie Carter. We want to help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you. We're glad that you're here with us today. We're glad that you've come this way to worship with us here in this sanctuary and glad to those of you uh, joining us uh, via EPB and also uh, those of you who are joining on the internet at various and sundry times. I'll tell you, we're trying to do the best we can to have church. We're not mad at anybody. We don't think anybody's got a conspiracy about us being here trying to shut us down or anything like that, but we are realists and we are people of faith and that puts us in a position of which we feel like that gathering together and worshiping is important. And if we feel like, which we do in the leadership of this church, that we can do that in a safe way in an auditorium this size with a number of people that we have coming, that we can put in measures in which uh, we believe that people will be safe. And that with the idea that many of you should not come. You should not get out. You should not come and be uh, a part of this. And we understand that. But boy, we're glad you're here. It's good just to lay eyes on people. And that's just about all we can see today is people's eyes. It's just like this, people looking around. You know, it's just like that. Look like, we all look like possums looking out over the, you're just blinking our little eyes and looking around. Well, I tell you, if you're not here, you're missing something. But we're glad that you have joined us. Oh my goodness, I tell you what, I just brag on Glasgow Baptist Church. I love Glasgow Baptist Church. Brother Greg, thank you, thank you for that service. I tell you, if all you could come and be here was a song service, you've worshiped. And I think that is so important. And I hope you've been touched with that at home. This morning, we want to talk about thankfulness. We want to talk about what it is to be thankful. We want to talk about thanksgiving, uh, not in necessarily the holiday, but in this season of thankfulness. We want to talk about that and bring those things to your attention. Look with me in Luke the 17th chapter and beginning with the 11th verse through the 19th. A story that's familiar with you about Jesus and the 10 lepers. Now, I heard a story, I don't know if it's true or not. It's plausible that a young man who had been gloriously saved, didn't have any church background, he didn't know much about the Bible, he was a Christian, and I'll tell you, he was enthused, and he felt like the Lord had called him to preach. You know, as Grady Nutt said about Baptists, we'll ordain any breathing. Well, this guy, he hadn't had much experience, and he didn't know much, but he said, I believe God's called me to preach. The church didn't ordain him. They didn't license him yet. But they said, listen, if you want to preach, go ahead and preach. We'll be glad to hear you, brother. We would love to hear you preach. They thought he was a wonderful young man, had a wonderful conversion experience, and he got up, and he preached a whole sermon on Jesus and the ten leapers. And he said they had leprosy. And you know how preachers are. He was a good enough preacher at that point that he imagined, you know, that here these guys were off leaping because they couldn't help it. They had some kind of nerve disease. And they were leaping and leaping. And Jesus healed them of that leprosy. And when they began to run away, as the story says, they realized they weren't leaping anymore. And one came back and said thank you to him. Now, I'll... I tell you what, I'm not the best preacher or the most educated preacher in the world, but I do know that we're talking about Jesus and the ten lepers. And this leprosy was a disease that sort of like sin. When you got leprosy, 
You, uh, you were isolated from your family. You were isolated from your job. You were isolated from all those things that were important to you in your life. And very probably you were not going to be cured. Very few people actually got well and got better. Some did. Therefore, you had to go show yourself to the priest. But, but leprosy was something terrible. It isolated you. It stole your life. It stole your future. It stole your loved ones from you. It was a terrible disease of the skin. We might almost call it, without saying it was skin cancer, it was almost like it was a terrible cancer of the skin. And so in Luke, the 17th chapter, in verses 11 through 9, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And when he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's stand together, will we? I want to stand with you today. I don't stand above you. I stand with you. We want God's message to be brought to us today. I want you to pray for me as the person who's preaching the word this morning. And I want you to pray that this word falls upon hearing hearts and falls upon my heart. Because whatever else we have in our life, and whoever else we know about and whatever we may know, the most important thing that we can have is God's Word in us. And that begins with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the very Word of God who's been shared with us in this world. Let's pray together as we begin this time together. Father, I thank you for this opportunity and I thank you, Lord, that you've gathered us together here in this place and all who are joining us today and whatever time they join us on the Internet and through television. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit is as much a part of one time as it is the other, as much a part and present in one place as it is the other. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that, that we might be blessed today by your word and by your testimony. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we be lifted up. We pray, Heavenly Father, that if we're lost, we might be saved. But we pray our hearts might be touched and that we might understand the worship of gratitude, of thankfulness, and how important that is to our lives, especially in times like these. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. I tell you, you ask yourself the question in this time of thankfulness, we all know we have a lot to be thankful for. We all know that there are many things that have come into our life in which we're thankful. And we say, well, I'm thankful for this and that, and, and we mean that. But you know, the word thankfulness in and of itself simply means gratitude for a benefit given. There isn't any great spiritual meaning to it. 
can take on a great spiritual meaning and have tremendous spiritual depth, but the word, uh, depth, but the word itself simply means that uh, you are showing gratitude for a benefit given. You may say thank you to many people. Thank you for opening the door. Thank you for being here. Many things. It's, it's almost simply, when you think about thanks, thank, thankfulness, it's almost simply a politeness, almost a polite custom. I agree with many people that I think in this day, we see, uh, and in this generation, I think we see a lot less thankfulness than we used to. I don't know if people are less thankful in their heart, but we certainly are more contentious. We're, we're more argumentative. We're the kind of things that I think keep us from even being sometimes polite. But these guys, these 10 lepers, had received something far and above. They had their life back. They had no hope before Jesus came on the scene and they cried out to him. They got their life back. There was much to be grateful for. It was a profound experience in their life. And now Jesus points out, where are the nine? Where are the nine? What happened with the nine? Well, we look at this passage and we say, well, what must Jesus have met and, and meant by this particular statement? Well, it could have been this. It could have been that those nine were simply ingrates. They weren't thankful for anything. There are people like that, you know, in your life. You meet them, they... They simply are, it's not that they're rude, but you can tell they have a great sense of entitlement in their life. You've met them. They seldom say thank you, and if they do, it's uh, simply on a transactional basis. You don't know if they really mean it or not. If you've worked in customer service or a job that's customer service-like for years in which you've dealt with the public, you've certainly met some people who simply felt that they were entitled to whatever you gave them. And they demanded that it be given. One day at work, working for South Central, a guy called in from a community. I recognized the name. He had built a house. He wanted his service in that day. In fact, he insisted that his service would be in that day. His family was moving in that day. And I said, well, I wish you'd have called us about a month ago and you could have had your service today. But really, there's a, we quote about 10 working days, which is two weeks in real people time because the engineering department has to come out and decide how it's going to be done. The construction department has to come out and put the line up to your house and the box on the side of the house. And then the installers come and they do whatever needs to be done in that house to get it done. And we quote to you about about 10 days. I look on the schedule and I see there are already in your exchange about six people, some who've waited two weeks, some longer, and some only four or five days who are ready for their install today. We've told them we're going to be there today. I'm telling you, he said, that you will be here today to put my service in. And I said, oh, well, that's fine with me. Just let me call the 10 people and give them your name and number to call so that you can step in front of them. Because you see what happens with many people who are ingrates, many people who are entitled, and many people who believe they're royalty, they're really cowards. They wouldn't, 
dare step in front of 10 or 15 families in order that they do their thing, but they want you to do for them what they don't have the courage that they believe they deserve. And I said, well, it made him mad. And I said, I'm sorry to make you mad, but how can I put you in front of all these people? Let me, let me do something. I need to let you talk to the people that get the big money and let me see what they can do for you. It may very well have been that those nine who received their healing simply thought that they deserved what they got. You've been around people long enough, you say, you know, that's not outside the realm of possibility. Could have also been that these guys, being nine Jewish men, simply believed that uh, this favor had come into their life because they were Jewish. A lot of times I find this theology that works among Christians. It was evident in Jesus' day. If you got sick, God must be punishing you. If you were barren, it must be a, a, a something of God on your life. If you were born blind or something, they believed it because some sin in your life or some sin in your parents' life. So when they got healed that day, they could have very easily have said, well, I'm favored of God. I, I'm a Jewish person. I, I'm favored. When the Messiah comes, when somebody comes, God, of course, is going to put this blessing upon me because I am Jewish and I am religious. They thought that God was going to bless them because of who they were. Have you ever said when something happened to you in your life, I don't understand how God has let this happen to me and I don't understand how God has let this happen to my family. I mean, we're good people. We go to church, we, we give an offering, we tithe, we do this, we do that. I just didn't think if I served God and did those things, I didn't think that those things would ever happen to my family. I can't believe my marriage failed because I had always done what God wanted me to do. I don't understand this. Well, we have a very transactional relationship with God. Many of us are unthankful because we think we do something for God and God does something for us. And since we're pretty good people, better than the average, we think we're going to have a better average life than everybody else. And so when this happened in their life, they thought they deserved it. They knew what God would think they were uh, happy. And they, so anyway, they were thankful. And they ran off to do their duty. We don't know. But if we say they're like us, perhaps that's the case. They may very well have been religious legalists. After all, one who at least they saw as a prophet and a powerful one had told them, now that they're healed, he had told them to go show yourself to the priest. That's what the law said. And if you were trying to live by the law and what the scripture said, then you knew that's what you must do. And that's what the guy that healed you said you must do. So you ran off to do that thing, irregardless of anything else that you might should have done or ought to have felt, you basically were going to do what the law required you to do. Their religion demanded it. Let me tell you something, folks. There's a lot of folks that live ungrateful lives because they've got enough religion, just enough religion to ruin them instead of bless them. 
They live their Christian lives in fear that they have not done enough and then they live their lives in the pride of I've done more than most people. And it's hard to be humble, as the song says, when you're perfect in every way. There are many Christians who believe I have lived by this book and they have a great big book under their arm that's full of rules and they'll tell anybody what it is and how it is, but the problem is they've got a marble-sized heart in their chest and it's just as hard. And of course they live ungrateful lives. For despite what Romans says and despite what what, what Paul says, and despite what Jesus says himself in the teaching of all the Gospels, they believe they got Christianity because they deserve it. And they hurt and they injure people. They don't mind to do that. It's not about winning souls, it's about making everybody right. And they hurt people and they leave many a Christian brother or sister wounded by the side of the road. And they abandoned them and are proud of it. They weren't tough enough or good enough or devoted enough. They didn't love God enough. Preached revival in a church in Illinois. Church at, uh, in Benton, Illinois, and the pastor was doing a fabulous job. He was out winning people. He was a teacher. He was a good preacher. And he was out winning people. And he found a family that had moved into Benton. He was a pretty discouraged guy at the moment. A lot of pastors are when you sit down and have coffee with them. And he had worked with his family. They'd been hurt in another community by a church of people with a great big Bible and a marble sized heart that's just as hard. They'd been hurt by them, the mom and dad had some time ago, and they'd got out of church and kind of got away from the Lord. They had a family now. They moved to Benton. This pastor went to visit him. He went to talk with them. They told him about their hurt and about so forth. He began to talk and work with them, and pretty soon that mom and dad was bringing their children to church. They knew that's what they needed to do, and the Sunday school teachers there loved them, and they had Bible school. One of the children of age got saved in that Bible school, Mom and dad rededicated their life to the Lord and they came back to him and, and he said it was a joyful experience. Everybody in our church loved that family and could see God working in that family. And they had the Lord's Supper one evening at the church. That whole family who had not joined the church yet, the one that was saved in Bible school hadn't been baptized yet, they all joyfully joined in in this church that they loved and they took the Lord's Supper. Oh, my stars. Nobody really cared too much, even though the policy of the church was, don't get me started on that, even though the policy of the church was that you weren't a member of the church, you couldn't take the Lord's Supper. Hmm, yes, anyway. Imagine, uh, I can imagine I was raised that way. Let, let, me, let me tell you why it's that way, briefly. Because Baptists at one time in their history wanted to say to everybody else, we're the only ones going to heaven. That's why. 
And that old deacon in that church with a great big Bible and a marble-sized heart, he didn't wait till anybody else. The pastor knew that they needed to be talked about this at some point in time. He was going to talk with them. Other people in the church were basically just glad that they were there in the fellowship and said, oh, what about it? They're already part of our fellowship. What do we have to, I mean, they don't have to vote on it in heaven. We don't have to vote on it in here. It's all going to work out. But that one old deacon... Let me tell you something, he was a Baptist landmarker from way back and with that big Bible, he jumped on that child that had taken the Lord's Supper and he bawled his mom and dad out and then he climbed the preacher's tree about it. And then he brought it up in business meeting. And we heard him all over again. Could these guys have been such a legalist in their life that even though they had had one of the most marvelous things that could possibly happen to you in that day, could they have missed the experience of worshiping and the experience of gratitude was there? And the answer is yes, and we miss it every day. I think more than likely none of them were that evil. I think probably if they'd have done the post-healing interview and the news media would have caught up with them about a week later and they would have said, listen, we heard there was a little row out here. You guys all got healed. and That one Samaritan came back and gave thanks. And, you know, Jesus kind of made a big deal out of the fact that you guys didn't come. I mean, what about that? Were you not grateful? Oh, no, they would have said we were grateful. Why? The reason we were running is because we were listening on our headphones to Nine Inch Nails. And I'll tell you, that song was really going and we were running. Oh, I'm telling you what, we were having the best time we couldn't wait to get to the church and well why didn't you go back and say thank you to Jesus well I mean goodness I had to see my family I had to see my shop I had to see my work while the bankers were at the door they were about to take everything I had I, I had to get back and had to get busy and had to do things I know that God knows I'm thankful and I'm grateful but apparently, what Jesus missed most from his own people, that group of Christians, we would have said, Jewish, yes, by nature, but the religious folks, was that they couldn't worship and say thanks. I kind of think that's where we're at today. We know to be thankful. Oh, you know, I'm telling you, there's probably not many of us here in this building this morning that do not, at least most of our meals, give thanks for the meal that is before us. And lately, you know, folks, we've been thanking God for that extra two rows of toilet paper in the, in the closet. I'll tell you what, there's some things to be thankful for. Yes, Sir Re Bob, we know exactly, exactly what we need to be thankful for. But really, so much of that kind of thing is not much more than being polite to God. How many people have you heard say in your life? You know, when my spouse died, when I went through that long period of illness, when we as a family went through this particular incident in our life, that bankruptcy, when we went through this time in our life, I'll tell you what, I got 
down with God and I got right. And I'll tell you what, I don't believe I was any more close to God in that time than I've ever been in that terrible time. And a Christian will tell you, in that time, God comes to them. And oh, they are thankful. They worship like they never worshiped before. I'll tell you, we Baptists that keep our hands in our pockets at church, we get them up in private. We say, oh, thank you, God, for being here. Oh, thank you, God, for showing up. Oh, God, I've never known you like I know you right now. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. thankful in times of trouble. It's sometimes trouble that comes that makes us truly thankful and it changes our lives. Look with me, if you will, in Romans, the 8th chapter, the 26th verse. I'd like to read you just on to the end, but we won't do that. Paul says in Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Talking about the Holy Spirit also helps our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should. That's why we find God in our trouble. We come to the end of our prayers. We come to the end of what we have actually to say at this time because we've never been there before. We don't know how to pray. But Paul says that the Spirit is there, and, but the Spirit himself, he says, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You can't say it. You only feel it. And it is beyond your feeling, but the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, listen to this, and we know that God causes all things to work for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew. That's an Old Testament idea. Foreknowing is about loving. You loved your children before you had them. You loved them while they were in the womb. You planned for them while they were there. You foreknew that they would have needs. You know your children are going to be teenagers. You know the challenges that are there. Because you love them, you foreknow and provide for things during that time. I don't mean time, just a, a new car, but I mean advice and how you're going to lead them into that area of their life. Whom he foreknew. Uh, and, and we know that God calls all things to work together for good to those who love God. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, that's us. He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? And it goes on. It really gets better. You know why we become so thankful in those troubled times? Because God has in His will and in His way 
knowing that those times will come. We never enter into a time. We didn't enter into this time of COVID, but what God knew it was going to happen. He was there before. He's there in it. He'll be there after it. God knows everything. Our church has a ministry and a mission during that time. Whatever's going to happen in your life, God, out of his foreknowledge of you and out of his great love for you, knowing what your life will be, knowing the good and bad choices you will make, God is there. His Holy Spirit is there to intercede for you. He's there to work on your behalf. He's there to keep your justification and to glorify you in that experience. That's why when we come to those times, we become thankful and deeply gratitude, have deep gratitude for God, and it bubbles out of us. And our little Baptist hands go in the air. We say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Not just for the things you've done, but for who I realize you are in this circumstance. I've seen it. As many of you have had occasion in your life I was taking care of my dad in the last years of his life for several reasons I went home on the weekend so forth and so on uh, it's not any more or less than you've done I'm not bragging I, that particular task as an only child fell to me my dad needed me he had some dementia keeping him in his home was primary Keeping in familiar circumstances was primary. He was good. He went out. He could do things. But keeping him stable was what we needed to do. Long story short. He was 95 at the time. And uh, Carmen, who became like a sister to me, came to help my mom and dad and be there for him. My dad had macular generation. He could have taken care of himself, but he needed some help around the house. Carmen had taken care of many people all the way through to their death in our community. She wasn't a nurse. She should have been, but she had learned many things about it. I'm telling you, she cared for my dad. She was like a sister to me. She was like part of the family. She was the daughter they wanted but never had. But we got to that point where it was obvious to Carmen and she told me, your dad's dying. Mike, I don't know how long, but he's dying. It won't be too long. Well, dad wanted to die. <laughs> he was tired of living under the curse of death and a deteriorating body and a shrinking social life. We didn't know what was wrong. And to help. We had just got to the point where we hired two other people because he needed 24-hour care, and they had eight-hour shifts. We were doing longer shifts than that. There was another lady in the community who filled in and did things, so we had a crew, and we just increased the crew. And Dad knew everyone around him. That was important. He knew everybody. He felt connected to everybody. This one lady that we hired, her name was Marilyn. I only knew from a lady at church where we attended, that this lady had worked in a doctor's office for 18 years. My assumption was that this lady had answered the phone, made appointments. Perhaps she did uh, insurance. She had worked there as an office manager or part of the office staff. I didn't know what doctor. I didn't know anything. But one Saturday afternoon, 
We'd taken dad either to the doctor and then to the hospital, and when he come home, everything had changed. You know, I learned to do a lot of things. Many of you have the same testimony. A lot of things were done that I never thought I'd be doing. But then when we got home from, we had other medications. Well, I can read the directions. You take this at this hour and do that. But we had other medications that you sort of had to diagnose to give them. A lot of things was going on in Sydney and I's life at that time. It was a extremely difficult time in our life. And I'll tell you what, sitting at the kitchen table that afternoon on Saturday, after I'd gotten there Friday night, I was at the end of myself. I'd been praying and God had seen, we'd seen God act and act and do just in time when things needed to be done. And I sat there, I was at the end of myself and I, I began to, God, I don't know what to do. My dad doesn't want to be in a nursing home. I don't want him to be there. He wants to be in his house. He can be in his house. It was okay. He could be there. It was fine. He was able to do that. But Lord, I don't know what to do. And I tell you, I sat there. I was as, I thought I was at the end of myself when I had the divorce. But I'll tell you what, I was worse off at that point than I'd ever been. I sat at that table. And I said, God, you're going to have to help me. I don't know what to do. And it wasn't just about the medicine. And as I sat there, out of the corner of my eye, somebody started coming up the wheelchair ramp. You would come up, turn left, and come onto the east porch, and then into the east door near where I was sitting. And I thought, oh, for crying out loud, for anybody to come right now at this point, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm going to do. My dad was vocalizing at the time. You'd go back and ask him what's wrong. He'd say nothing, and then he'd want to talk about something that he really shouldn't be talking about it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, if somebody from the church is coming that's just curious and wants to give a report on what's going on, doesn't really care, I don't want to deal with them right now. That's what I said to myself. I saw it was a woman that came up. She turned, and I could see her face. And it was Marilyn who we had hired. Somebody who my dad had acquaintance with and knew her family from his own boyhood. And she came in that east door. And she said, Mike, I was driving on the highway out there going to my house. It's a mile away. And God said to me, why don't you just drop by and, talk and see how Earl's doing today? She didn't come there for Earl. She might have in her mind, she came there for me. I was the guy that was beside myself at that moment. She came in and I'm going to tell you folks, it couldn't have been any better if Jesus Christ himself would have walked in that door because here's the other part of this story that I didn't know even then. She had worked 18 years in a doctor's office as his nurse. She had worked in surgery with him. And guess what? God in his foreknowledge and his predestination and his intercession with the prayers of God's people and my prayers going up to him, guess what? That doctor she had worked for was a urologist. The very thing in terms of kidney failure that my dad was dying of was the very person that came in that door that day to be able to say to me, here is what we need to do. Here is what needs to happen. You're okay. Your dad's going to be okay. This is a process. I've seen this many, many times before. Praise God. 
You think I wasn't thankful? You think my burden wasn't lifted in something like that? You think that I didn't see God's hand in that specifically at that time? I want to tell you what, I want to praise God for the hard times. I told somebody I wouldn't take a million dollars for the divorce I went through and some wiseacre said, yeah, you probably wouldn't give 10 cents to go through it again. Well, that's true, but I want to tell you what, God in the hard times is therefore you do not think he is not. And if you want to grow as a Christian, I tell you what, and you want to be thankful to God and get your little Baptist hands in the air and this little marble-sized heart grow even larger and grow to what God intended for you to have, I'll tell you what, call out to God in the times that are beyond you and watch your Lord show up and watch the Holy Spirit intercede for you and bring comfort to your life. We don't do such a good job of praising God in the good times. We find out who He is in the bad times. But I'll tell you what, at the basis of all thanksgiving is to know what God has done for you in Jesus Christ in the forgiveness of sin and saving your soul. Thankful in those times. J.B. Phillips was a deacon in Gamaliel Baptist Church. He went and gave his testimony many times in lay revivals. Many of you here will remember, and perhaps you participated in lay revivals. J.B. had been saved. He worked, his family had worked in the logwoods. That's what he was. He was a logger. His testimony went something like this. In World War II, he was lost when he went to the service. And one night in a convoy, his ship, which was carrying 100 octane airplane gasoline, was blown out of the water by a Japanese sub. Fire was everywhere. He was blown clear and into the Pacific Ocean in the middle of nowhere. Of course, the convoy went on as it had to do. There were men screaming. He was thrown overboard into hell. There were men screaming. They were burning up. They couldn't get out of the spilled fuel. There they were when dawn finally came. He said, I thought I'd never see the beautiful place of Monroe County again. I'd never see the creeks. I'd never see the bluff. I'd never see the meadows. And I'd never see the logwoods again. I was just out there in the middle of nowhere. I was pretty much hopeless. He said, an Australian ship had seen the fire in the night and really risked its own well-being, perhaps sent there by Americans, I don't know. But they came along to find out what had gone happen and to what had happened and to look for survivors. And they lowered a skiff down. They put sailors in that skiff and they went along, those of us that had survived. J.B. Phillips said when they got to us, said that was the biggest Australian guy that I've ever seen with the biggest arm I've ever seen. When I put my arm up, he reached down and grabbed a hold of me and he didn't help me into the boat. He took me and threw me back into that boat and went to the next guy and did the next one and the next one. He said, I was saved. You can't believe how relieved I was. You can't believe what it felt like to come up out of that water and think that my life was before me. But he went back home to Monroe County. Don't know if he was married at that time, but he got married and he certainly wasn't living for Jesus.
at all. Heard the gospel many times. Heard it preached, knew many religious people. But he heard the gospel one time about how Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. And no matter who you were, how good you were, or what you'd been through, Jesus died for you. The only way to make it to heaven and the only way to truly be saved and to have eternal life within you was to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. He'd heard it a lot of times, but that time the Holy Spirit came and convicted him, convinced him of his sin against God and God's righteousness that he'd never make it by his own efforts. And he convicted J.B. of a judgment to come. J.B., somewhere in Monroe County, at an altar of prayer somewhere, knelt down and asked Jesus Christ to come into his heart and forgive him of his present sins and everything he'd ever done. And he said, I want to tell you folks, Jesus Christ came into my life. I know he came in. He said, you know how I know he came in? Because what Jesus did for me right then felt exactly like that big Australian soldier reaching down to the Pacific Ocean and me reaching my hand up and he grabbed hold of me and threw me back in the boat. That's exactly what God did for me when he saved me by Jesus Christ. I was saved. I was brought from a place of death to a place of life. He was grateful. Let me tell you something, everything that you and I have and everything that's happened in our life, if we love God, God is going to work no matter how bad it is. He's going to work everything together for good if we love Him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Saved. 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 Are you saved? You want to be thankful for something in your life that's great and beyond what you could possibly think or believe. Let me invite you to come and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let me invite you to say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I've fallen short of what you say. And I want to trust you as my Lord and Savior. I don't believe I can save myself. That's why you can't say, I just need to get a little better. I need to cut a few things out. You can't do it. But with Jesus, you can. I want to trust you as my Lord and Savior because I think you died for me on the cross. And I'm surrendering my life to you just like that guy. Just like that Samaritan that ran back and threw himself at Jesus' feet and gave thanks and praise. I guarantee you, God will save you. say, well, I have a J.B. Phillips experience. I don't know what you have. But I know it's real. And I know that when he saves you, you'll know you're saved. You'll know your sins are forgiven. And you'll be able to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.